into the moonlight. Into the Moth Light. Hello and welcome to Into the Moth Light, a podcast dedicated to artists' moving image, experimental film and festivals, and installation art. Anyone listening in the UK who has an interest in the moving image will probably already be aware of Lux and what it does. However, In way of an introduction to this episode of Into the Mothlight and introducing our guest this time, a short recap. Lux was originally established in London in 2002 to build on the work of its predecessor organisations, that being the London Filmmakers Cooperative, London Video Arts and the Lux Centre. All of this is going back as far as the 1960s. Lux Scotland was established in 2014 as an agency dedicated to supporting and promoting artists working with the moving image in Scotland. From their office in Glasgow, they run public exhibition and touring projects, learning and professional development for artists and arts professionals, distribution, commissioning and production support, research and sector advocacy. Lux director Nicole Yip is also an experienced curator and writer. She has worked at the first site in Colchester on the first Lux and ICA biennial of Moving Images in 2012 and was a member of the curatorial team at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. In a slightly echoey meeting room at the Glasgow Centre for Contemporary Art, where Lux are based, I started our interview, as we normally do, by asking Nicole when she first became interested in the moving image as we understand it. Into the moth light. Well, maybe I can start actually from the very beginning, because my background isn't in moving image or even in art. I started off as a neurobiologist. <laughs> um, that was what my first degree was in. But I suppose at that time, you know, when you're you're young and you're put under pressure to choose a path in life, you don't necessarily know all the avenues that are open to you, and so you just sort of, you know, try to like go based on intuition. Um, But unfortunately at that time, I had been very interested in sort of art and art history more generally. But I knew I didn't want to be an art historian, so I didn't pursue art history. And so then I scratched that off my list and just went down the list of degrees and said, neurobiology. How the brain works sounds absolutely fascinating. I'd like to know more about that. So that's what I studied, but it very quickly became clear that I wasn't quite cut out to be a neuroscientist. (laughs) Um, So I ended up completing a minor degree in art history um, and in my last year um, at university I applied um, quite, you know, it was a bit of a long shot but I applied for this curatorial placement um, fellowship at the um, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art um, and I got it. (laughs) And that was really the first time I came to understand you know, what a curator was and how a museum worked and the different uh, roles that you could sort of play within within that ecology. And then, yeah, it wasn't until after I moved to London that I sort of found myself gravitating towards moving image work. At first, I sort of 
set out just interning at different commercial galleries, doing what I could, just trying to get my foot in the door and eventually uh, was accepted onto the curating um, master's um, program at the Royal College of Art. That's when I really, um, my eyes really opened to, to the possibilities of, of moving image. But again, I, I never really considered myself a, a moving image person. Um, and then I went on to work um, just as an exhibitions curator for many years um, and you know became quite interested in writing as well. And then I think at some point when I was trying to decide which uh, exhibition I was going to review next, I looked back and sort of took stock of what I'd done previously and I noticed, wow, actually almost everything that I've done, everything that I've written has involved moving image work in, in one capacity or another um, and usually in quite a substantial way and that's when I realized, okay, actually there's really, there's probably something there. <laughs> Um, and then I was fortunate enough, I was working for the ICA at that time. At some point, the ICA and Lux decided to collaborate on uh, a biennial of moving image. Um, it was going to be the first one ever in London. And, you know, I had my foot in the door at the ICA already. Um, I applied for the role and I, I, I got it. So I, I worked um, a lot. Um, on that first moving image project with with Lux and um, it's been a relationship with Lux that's never stopped. (laughs) If we can take a little step back to your early days as a a curator, can you remember some of the the artists that that you were maybe working with um, at, at that stage of your career and how you started to find your voice as a curator? For my degree show at the Royal College, I worked on um, a sort of major moving image installation with um, the Dutch artist Wendelin van Oldenburg. Yeah, I mean, she was a real inspiration to work with. And thinking back now, it's quite amazing that she agreed to work with us at Students because she was already established to a certain extent um, at that time. And, you know, quite soon after that went on to do the Dutch Pavilion um, in Venice. From the outset, a lot of what interested me about moving image work is the way uh, you have the confluence of all these different types of language. So on on the one hand, you have the image with this sort of, um, you know, the visual language, the language of the camera, that sort of cinematic um, grammar. And then on the other hand, you have sound and linguistics and... um, you, then you have all the ways that sound and image can either work together and complement each other or work against each other to create these points of friction or tension and slippages. And I think that's so incredibly fascinating. So, um, you know, certainly Wendelin's work, uh, you could think about it along those lines. But in those early days, I was always, I was also very interested in the work of people like Liz Rhodes who were really sort of playing with language and the relationship between image and sound. And then later on when I worked at First Sight, we had this very sort of large exhibition space. And I'm also really interested in the way moving image can be presented spatially and the way it can really sort of hold space. 
Um, so I worked with people like Melvin Motti, um, who's another Dutch artist, also from Rotterdam, like Gwendolyn. Um, and we showed this beautiful piece that he made with these different objects floating in outer space. And we showed it on 35 millimeter in its own sort of blackout space. Um, and it was really sort of captivating and beautiful uh, and silent. And you could just sit in that room and you know, become completely transfixed by these objects that sort of floated and span at slow speeds. Into the moth light. Into the moth light. How do you go about building up a relationship um, with an artist to make sure that you collectively do build um, something beautiful that people can immerse themselves in? I have this philosophy that when you work with an artist, you're not just... So say, for instance, if you're curating an exhibition or curating a screening, you're not just extracting their work, presenting it, and then that's it. I'm, I'm a very sort of firm believer that you use that as the basis to build up a longer standing relationship with the artist. I like to think that I've still some of those artists that I worked with in the early days I still maintain contact with and still like to know what they get up to and if I am lucky enough to be able to visit their countries I'll, I'll try and go and do a studio visit with them. And certainly also in the work in the way that we're thinking about building the Lux Scotland collection here it was never going to be a case where we would say we want this work for the collection but not that one. It was more about saying we're going to invest in your practice and we're going to represent your body of work, your, your entire body of work. Um, that was one of the things that I found quite um, difficult about the exhibition making context because often you'll work on these big group shows and you know when I was making exhibitions sometimes we'd be showing 40 some odd artists in an exhibition and it doesn't leave much capacity for you to nurture those relationships as carefully as you might be able to working in the role that you know I'm working in now so I really sort of cherish that and just being able to take the time to not only talk to people about what they're working on and what they're making but also like what they'd like to see and what opportunities they'd like to see happen. And, and that's also a big part of the way that our program's informed is just through these conversations. There are opportunities for artists to show moving image works in, in Scotland. Uh, a lot of people are making their own opportunities. But what's your advice to moving image artists who would like to be on the radar of curators like yourself, for example? Well, I think one of the best ways, and probably a lot of people say this, is to submit your work to festivals. I know a lot of festivals get hundreds or even thousands of submissions, but each one does get viewed by a, a panel of, of people. And regardless of whether they get selected or not, um, it means that people have seen the work. And things get chosen for festivals for different reasons, you know, whether they fit thematically or whether they work well within a program they're trying to build. Sometimes fantastic work doesn't get selected, not because it's not good, but because it 
doesn't fit within within some other sort of criteria that you know you, you wouldn't know about otherwise. For me, I, actually, when I when I first moved up to Scotland, that was one of the most productive ways for me to get a good sort of barometer of what people were making here now. Um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to take part on a number of different selection panels or juries, and it was through that actually that. Um, a lot of my research was conducted, strangely enough, by doing that work. I mean, I'd also say that having a good website can be really helpful because often if you're trying to look up work and find out a little bit more about an artist's practice, to have uh, a sort of well-structured and clear website with clear descriptions of work and, and some good images can really, really help the research process. Into the moth light. Into the moth light podcast. When I first started with Lux, I, I worked for Lux in London. I suppose Lux in London is best known for its collection, and that's that's the. Um, I guess it's. I suppose that's the first way I encountered the organisation. Certainly. Um, as a student at the Royal College trying to put together exhibitions and uh, referring to the Lux website for research and uh, constantly bothering people for preview links. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose one thing that's kept me at Lux, certainly, is its ethos. And that is something that, without a doubt, um, goes back to its roots as uh, a sort of artist-led co-op. Um, and I think it still really sort of holds fast to those principles of open and democratic working processes. It's a very supportive working environment. Um, it aspires, but you know maybe doesn't always achieve this, but tries to be as sort of horizontal and open and generous as possible, and to also kind of let as many voices in as it, as it can in the way that we approach the public program as well. I think um, the sort of principles of inclusion and um, making sure that voices which have maybe historically been less visible or marginalized are given a space um, and the way we sort of work in such a sort of networked way through different partnerships and collaborations and inviting different curatorial voices in um, and these sort of models of shared authorship. I think these all sort of hark back to the original sort of ethos of, of the co-op. You mentioned the, the public programme and there's also the learning and professional development programme for artists. So can you give me some examples of, of what that looks like on the ground to help people from perhaps our listeners in the States understand you know, a little bit more about how Lux works? Sure. I mean, I, I would say that we place equal emphasis on the artistic programme as we do on the learning and professional development um, side of things. Um, the artistic programme, we deliver that through partnerships with other organizations because we don't have a space of our own we're sort of forced to go out there and inhabit other people's spaces but it also I think allows us to remain really flexible and light on our feet 
Um, I always like to describe us as an organization who we have a small footprint, but we cast a long shadow. And also because of the way we aspire to work with a sort of nationwide remit, um, to not only work within the sort of metropolitan hub of Glasgow and Edinburgh um, and maybe Dundee, but to kind of push beyond the central belt. It allows us to work as much as we can, although we're still a very small office with limited people power. And we can only be in so many places at once. Um, it allows us to also work um, in collaboration with other organizations um, out with the central belt. So, for instance, later this week, I'm heading up to Aberdeen um, to do some screenings there and to do some one-to-one -one mentoring sessions and to give a sort of lunchtime talk about Lux um, and then heading straight up to Eden Court in Inverness where we're launching a new um, screening series uh, which will be once every two months um, with Eden Court up in Inverness. So yeah, the public program, we do all sorts, um, exhibitions, screenings, live events, uh, touring projects. With a, uh, with a learning and professional development program, this is delivered primarily through our um, Superlux network. Um, Superlux is our professional development network. It's nationwide and it's free to all artists and curators, researchers, writers and other arts professionals throughout Scotland. Through Superlux you get free access to all of our events and opportunities that we offer which includes um, everything from artist-led workshops. They can have a kind of skills-based focus, but they can also be very much about inviting an artist to share their way of thinking about something. We also do uh, artists' masterclasses as well. So often when we have uh, visiting artists or sort of leading international practitioners coming through the UK, we'll invite them to lead a masterclass and try to create that sort of interface for the Glasgow community to interact um, with, with leading practitioners. Um, and then we also do very practical things like um, professional practice seminars. So for instance, um, we did one about how the limited edition model for moving image works if you were to, say, sell one of your um, films or moving image works to a collector or to an institution, how does that work exactly? And we also do sort of one-to-one -one mentoring sessions and, as you know, we also offer um, bursary opportunities uh, to allow artists to travel to different festivals um, and to meet people and to network. I've been lucky enough to, to, to benefit from being a Superlux member, in particular things like the one-to-one. -one. And for, for a lot of artists, they maybe don't have the opportunity to study formally. So do, do you see a kind of benefit to the sort of moving image community in Scotland? Do you, do you see people maybe uh, producing stronger work as a result of your support? I'd like to say yes, but... <laughs> um... You know, I, it's obviously quite a subjective question and also sort of bearing in mind that it is still quite early days for, for Lux Scotland. We were only established in 2014, so it's only been four years now. But I, I definitely say that based on feedback from people that it's perhaps what it's done is it sort of helped to constitute the community here. 
Um, through our screenings, people come together and see each other face to face. They might go to a workshop the next week and see the same faces there face to face. And so hopefully it just sort of makes people within the same field of practice visible to each other. And in terms of the strength of the work that's made here, I mean, it's always, it's always been strong. That's part of the reason why we set up here, because there was such a burgeoning potential here in Scotland. And I mean, you, you only need to look at the list of internationally acclaimed artists who come from Scotland uh, as testament to that. Um, but it just seemed that counter to that potential, there wasn't an organization like Lux who was specifically dedicated not just to showing moving image but to sort of supporting it from the ground up from you know in a very sort of holistic way and also to do some advocacy for the sector as well so that's that's really um, you know the strength of the the field here was part of the reason why we we decided to establish a presence here so you mentioned before the Lux Scotland collection so a collection of artists moving image work based in Scotland What's the current thinking about that? Because I know that you did sort of tour to consult with people as well. So where are we at with it? Well, so on on the one hand, you had this sort of open research um, process that was taking place through these public events where we hosted these events at different locations around Scotland and each one was um, con- conceived around looking at sort of specific questions related to collection building. So you had this one thing happening on the sort of conceptual um, level. And then parallel to this um, sort of open research process, uh, there, were, there was also the preparatory work that we had to do on a pragmatic level, which is to do with the fundraising, the infrastructure, the logistics, etc. So we've um, spent the past year sort of um, building a new website that would have the capacity to host an online catalogue of work which would be linked up to our database whenever the collection should effectively be launched Um, and all that sort of background work we've um, done a lot of consultation with our colleagues who have obviously kind of 50 plus years of experience in distribution so that our um, team here is sort of up to speed with the way things are done um, down in London and so we can learn from sort of best practice and their experience and so that leaves us with now the fundraising. <laughs> we have put in, we, we did put in a bid um, to secure the next three years of funding, um, but unfortunately we weren't successful with that application, so we, we, are, we still remain now on a sort of year-to-year cycle. We're trying to find a way to see if it would be possible to launch a collection, um, you know, with the current state of our funding, but it does put certain limitations on it because of the impossibility of planning long term and to also make those longer term commitments to artists in, ter- in terms of taking on responsibility for representing their work. You know, in terms of the way that we see representation, it's not just about sort of plucking our idea of what the sort of, you know, the best picks are from what we have at our disposal, but it's about really sort of fostering a relationship and nurturing that, uh, representing, getting to understand the work um, in a sort of deep way um, so that we can represent it as as well as we can. Um, And that for us is not just about sending the work out to all the different festivals, but it's also about 
creating a meaningful context in which that work can be understood. So to create discourse around that work, to commission writing, um, to invite different uh, curators to come in to build different narratives through the collection, etc. So yeah, I mean, that aspect of it has, is still yet to unfold, but we're hopeful that we'll be able to find a way to sort of push forward even without um, our RFO funding. One of the interesting things about Lux is your critical forum. And I know that the, the Glasgow one is about to relaunch and they, they, they have a, a forum in Edinburgh. So it's obviously important to be able to have access to works to view them, but equally as important to discuss the works as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that people often miss after coming out of higher education is the opportunity to have a sort of ongoing engagement with critical discourse. And so one of the ways uh, in which we try to fill that gap is to convene or and facilitate these critical forums. You know, we, we do that with a very, very light touch in that we don't lead the sessions in any way. What we, just, what we do is we create the situation for them to take place. Um, so we help in terms of sourcing a space, we, host, um, we help in terms of building the group and sparking the fire, so to speak, um, and to also sort of set some parameters around um, how the group should function. So uh, for instance, we ask that there's an, uh, a minimum commitment, um, that people commit to coming for at least six months or a year. Um, and we also try to structure or ask members to structure the sessions uh, around thinking about ideas and looking at other people's work rather than having it function like a crit. Um, so those are the only sort of parameters that we set. Um, and then from there, it's up to the members to take each session in whatever direction they like. Usually what most groups tend to do is um, the different members take turns to lead a session. Um, so they'll just sort of rotate through the group. Um, and then every once in a while, um, one of the someone from the Lux team will come and check in with them. But there'll be also ongoing contact, obviously, in between in between meetings um, to help with research and sourcing works. It's been really nice to have a chat with you today, Nicole. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Into the Mothlight is a Charles S. Bravo production. You can follow us on Twitter at the Mothlight Pod, email your questions and comments to mothlightpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Mothlight Podcast. Like us, rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast isn't sponsored by anyone. Perhaps you can do something about that. Until next time, goodbye.